for most situations in life, as we go into them to make a choice, we do uh, a cost-benefit analysis asking, okay, is this worth it? Is this thing I'm about to do uh, worth it? Wor you know, worth what I'm going to get out of it? Is the benefit worth the cost? And am I going to get something out of this that makes all the effort and all the time and all the work um, worth the effort, worthwhile? And this whole series we've been in um, about relationships is talking, we've been learning about how do we connect in our relationships, especially with the people that are hardest to connect with. Our, our goal has been to have healthy relationships, to reflect God in our relationships. Uh, and the reality is that relationships are hard. And I don't know if you, if you say they aren't. Maybe you haven't had one yet. I'm not sure. But relationships are difficult. And ever since sin and selfishness entered our world, relationships have been uh, an uphill battle in a way. There's weeds. There's uh, barriers in them. And perhaps, like me, you sometimes feel like, you know, it's just too hard. You know, they're hard. And it's just too hard. Maybe it's relationships in general. Maybe it's with a certain person. You just feel like, it's just too hard. Maybe better for me to go up and build a cabin in the mountains and not see anybody and just hang out with the raccoons. Although living with raccoons is kind of hard too. So, uh, But it might feel like you're just putting in a lot of effort into a relationship, but it's just not getting better. The, the pain is too deep. The, the problems are too many. And maybe you think it would just be better not to have relationships or at least certain ones. And you might think life would be a lot easier that way. And there's a book, which I've never actually read, but the title of the book is, I've always found very interesting and intriguing. It says, uh, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. That's the title. Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. That's what relationships are a lot of times, isn't it? They're, they're a mess. They're, they just feel like, what is going on here? What is, this just feels like you've ever been fishing and you get like this big tangle of fishing line that's like all knotted up and it's like where can I find the end of it? How am I ever going to unknot this? And it can just feel like a big mess. There's fighting, there's misunderstanding, there's conflict, there's tension and strife, there's picking sides, there's stinging words that are spoken, there's painful actions that are taken. And you don't know if you'll ever get over that thing that they said or that thing that they did. And it, it is seared in your mind and you're frustrated, hurt, annoyed, fed up, tired, angry, and scared. You feel misunderstood uncared for, disrespected. And so is it all worth it? Is this mess of relationships really worth our time and energy to put into it? And today as we finish this series um, that we've been doing on relationships, uh, the, our final message is about becoming people who connect. Uh, the, this whole series has been called Connected, and we want to connect with people. Better relationships start with more connection. And so today is about how do we become people who connect how do we you know, to connect with others and to connect with God? Perhaps you feel like you're in a relational rut. You just kind of are, are spinning your wheels. Like I'm trying you know, with this particular relationship or with you know, every relationship. I just feel like I'm spinning my wheels. I'm trying very hard and I'm not getting anywhere here. And it feels like you know, something needs to change, but no matter how hard you try, it never does. You just keep trying but getting nowhere. Maybe you make some progress. You're like, okay, I think that relationship is better. Okay, I think that interaction was better. But then they say something that kind of you know, sets you off or they do something that sets you off and then you're right back into uh, kind of that old pattern that you had before. And if that's you, my prayer today is that this message would help you as we think about how to become people to connect. And there's actually one change that you can make that would help all of your relationships, both your relationship with God and your relationship with 
other people. And if you want, if you want to experience transformation in life, in your relational life, there's one key practice for you to implement. And so I want you for a second to imagine, instead of me telling you that, that you're in a conversation with somebody and they say, you know what, I just need one key thing to change. What, what, if you could tell me one thing to change to make my relationships better, what would it be? So if somebody was asking you that, you know, imagine what would your answer be? That if it's okay, so I just did this one thing, you know, what would you tell somebody if they're asking you for advice? How would you complete this sentence? Genuine transformation requires blank. If you're trying to grow and change and become a more loving person and obey God's commandments and be like Jesus, then you're a person who wants to experience genuine transformation in your life. And so genuine transformation requires blank. What, what would that be? And this sentence is, uh, is a beginning of a quote, and it's from this book, Surrender, uh, Surrender to Love, and I highly recommend it if you're wanting to just grow in your relationship with God and others. But the full quote is this. He says, Genuine transformation requires vulnerability. We may ask, why is that? Why does genuine transformation require vulnerability? The writer goes on, he says, It is not the fact of being loved unconditionally that is life-changing. It's the risky experience of allowing myself to be loved unconditionally. In other words, if someone says, I love you unconditionally, that doesn't actually change you. Just hearing the fact, just hearing it stated, doesn't actually change you. But it's allowing yourself to be loved unconditionally that actually changes you. And he's saying the only way that that can happen is through vulnerability, of opening ourselves up to the person, of sharing of ourselves, of not hiding or putting up walls. And only when we open up to someone are they truly able to love us. Because if we're not showing them our true self, then they're not loving us as we are. They're loving a false self, the image that we want them to see. And so turn with me to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 to chapter 2, verse 6, and we'll see how this works. This is a biblical thing. I'm not just, you know, this guy didn't make it up. I'm not making it up. And this is a letter that the Apostle John wrote to a church about 2,000 years ago, and he's trying to help them sort through some difficulties. They had a number of people that had left the church, and so he's trying, and they kind of had a different view of God, a different view of life, and so John's trying to tell them, hey, I want you to see, they left because they're not on the right track here, and here's how you can see and be assured that you're on the right track. And he says in the opening verses that, I'm telling people about Jesus, and I'm writing this letter so that you can have a relationship with God and have a relationship with each other. It's all about relationships for him. And so what does he say will bring us into relationship with God and with others? What does he say will help us connect with God and to connect with others? And John makes a statement about God in verse 5. He says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And light and darkness, I mean, those are kind of two commonly used symbols in religion or you know, movies or, or stories and stuff. In the Bible, uh, light primarily applies to what you know and how you live. And so, you know, imagine this room was completely dark. We wouldn't know what was in this room, and therefore we wouldn't know how to really walk through it properly. And so, but if we turn on the lights now, okay, now I have knowledge about how this room is laid out. I'm not going to run into that chair. I know there's a little aisle right here. I know there's goodies back there on the table. You know, so, and then we know, okay, now I know how to live in this situation. There's light that brought knowledge, and now I know how to live. And so it's kind of intellectual, like, okay, I need to know. And it's also moral how I am going to live. And there's one, uh, if we're, we think about, if you're in the dark about something, you know, you know, she's totally kept me in the dark. 
you lack knowledge about it. And if you're in the dark in regard to how you live, you're doing what's evil, what is wrong, you know, light versus darkness. And one scholar says, intellectually, light is truth and darkness, and, and darkness is ignorance and error. Morally, light is purity, and darkness is evil. And so when John says that God is light, he's saying God, by nature, uh, reveals, he makes things known, but he also is pure, he's also holy, he's also righteous. There's that intellectual part where he makes things known to us, and the moral part where uh, when we see him, he does everything right, he's perfect. And so if we can't see properly, we're stumbling around, but God both enables us to see, and in so allowing us to see allows us to live rightly, to, to do things the right way. In the following verses, John then draws up the implications of this truth, that God is light. John makes the implications very clear and very simple. You have two choices in life. Uh, you can either walk in the dark, or you can walk in the light. Those are the two choices. There's no like, well, isn't there like a little dimmer switch? Can't that kind of be like half dark, half light? You know, and it's, no, it's one or the other. Walk in the dark, or walk in the light. And he's telling these people, you know, a group of people have left your church, and they're kind of unsettled by it, but he's trying to show them, no, look, they're walking in the dark. And this is how you can know that you're still walking in the light. And these uh, people just had different beliefs, and so he's helping them. In verse 6, he says this, of First John chapter 1. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And so the claim being made by these people that left this church, John's opponents that he's kind of writing against, they're saying, we have fellowship with God. We're the ones that really have fellowship with God. And if you want to have fellowship with them, you've got to follow on our way. But John is saying, they're claiming to have a relationship with God, uh, but they really don't. When you look at how they're living, they're walking in darkness. And God is light. So if you have dark here and you have light here and you're walking in darkness, he's saying, look, they're saying they have fellowship with God, have a relationship with God, but they don't because they're here in the dark and God's over here in the light. So it says, based on the way you're living, you're lying about having fellowship with God. And in verse 7, he gives the remedy. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And whenever you see you know, the blood of Jesus, that's one way of referring to his death, his death on the cross on our behalf for our sins. And the issue is that pe these people are claiming to have fellowship with God while they're walk living a life of sin. They're walking in darkness morally, which means they're also in the dark about knowing God. And John says that God is light and, and he is in the light. So if you are not in the light, you're not with him. If you're in the darkness, you're by definition uh, separated from him. You don't know him. And then he tells the, his opponents, you can't have fellowship with God if you're walking in darkness by living a life of sin. And then verse 8 assumes their response. It assumes that their response is, but we have no sin. We're not living in sin. Like he's saying, you don't have fellowship with God because you're walking in the darkness by living in sin. And then their response is, we don't have sin. We're not living in sin. And so his response to them is verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And it gets even more serious. In verse 10 he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. So verse 8 says, we're deceiving ourselves if we say we have no sin. Verse 10 says, we're calling God a liar if we say we have not sinned. And so what is walking in the dark? Walking in the dark means you're living in sin while denying that you have any sin. And notice the repetition of words associated with lying. Verse 6, 
If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. And this is the opposite of having the truth or, or God's word. Uh, verse 6 says, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So John is saying if you're living a life of sin, while denying that you're living a life of sin, then you're out of alignment with God's truth. You're out of alignment with God's word. You're out of alignment with the gospel. You're out of alignment with God himself. You're out of sync with God and his word. The truth hasn't really gotten in you and change you. It's more outside of you. You're put, you aren't putting the truth in the practice. You're living a lie. You're living a, a false reality. You're in the dark. Both denying sin and living in sin are incompatible with a God who is light. To walk in darkness means to live a lie and to live sinfully. And this is why both hiding sin and living in sin are incompatible with God because God is in the light. You can't keep things in the dark. And so what does it look like to walk in the light? John says in verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not Ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. And so walking in the light means that we don't hide our sin and we don't hold on to sin. Instead, we live in honesty and in holiness. We confess sin openly and we leave sin behind. And so maybe it feels like, okay, maybe I've got all this stuff in my life and we feel like if anybody knew this, I don't even know what would happen. If God really knew, I mean, God already knows it, just for the record, but we often like try to pretend that God doesn't really see it unless we like kind of talk about it or we kind of give our good deeds. Like, hopefully my bad stuff will hide behind these good deeds I'm doing. But we might imagine if this person knew everything wrong I've ever done, if I brought all that before them, I, what would they do? Like, they're, they're going to hate me. They're going to you know, reject me. How could they ever love me? And so I want to ask that, what do we find when we finally leave the darkness behind and step into the light? We actually find the opposite of what we might expect. We find a God who is faithful and just, who is not only ready and willing to forgive our sins, but who is eager to do so. The price has already been paid for them. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And propitiation is like a Bible word that means uh, it's something that turns away uh, just anger. And so a sacrifice in our Jesus was a sacrifice in our place. What we deserve for our sins is God's just anger. The penalty for those sins is death. But then Jesus takes the, the penalty in our place, and so it turns away the just anger that we deserve for it. Forgiveness has already been purchased, and God is just waiting for us to come forward and receive it, to finally say, this is what I've done. This is all the bad stuff I've done. This is the bad stuff I've done today. These are the bad thoughts I've had in the past hour. These are the good things I've failed to do. And he just wants us to bring it into his presence. And then it's not, let me rub your nose in it. Or you know, come back when you're a little more cleaned up. But it says, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to show we're worthy. It's undeserved and it's unearned. 
And while we're in darkness, we're weighed down by guilt, by shame, by fear. And so what we experience in the light is freedom. When we come into the light, we're released from the penalty of our sins. We don't have to no longer carry around the guilt and the shame and the fear. And in darkness, sin has power on you. Sin feeds on darkness. That's like you know, if I had like one of those little plant tags that tells you this needs full sun and you know, plenty of water or something. It's like sin's little plant tag grows best in darkness. But life with God, connection with God, grows best in full light. And so if sin feeds on darkness... As long as you stay in the dark, it will have a hold on you. But when we come into the light, God is more powerful than our sin to release us from its power. And what's also true is that the light grows us in holiness. And so while we're in the light, that's what you need to grow to be more like Jesus. And so now sin's presence, we're being released from sin's presence in our life. And the light is where fellowship and relationship and connection with God is. It's also where connection with others is. Look back at verse 7. It says, But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So here's a question for you. What is the greatest barrier and obstacle for you to have connection with God and with others? What's the greatest barrier and obstacle for you to have connection with God and with others? And the answer that perhaps comes to mind is, well, my sin or my selfishness, or my pride. That's what really hurts people. That's what God really doesn't like. And it's true that those things create barriers. But it might be surprising to to hear that that actually isn't your greatest barrier uh, in the way of connection with God and with others. And why is that? It's because sin is not a permanent barrier. It's not something that becomes a barrier and can never be taken away. It can be removed. The greatest barrier to us connecting with God and connecting with others is to deny our sin. Hiding sin is the greatest barrier to you having fellowship with God and having fellowship with others. If we will not admit, confess, take responsibility for, or own your sin, you will lack connection with God and the other person because the barrier of sin can be removed, but it can only be removed if we stop hiding, if we stop denying that it's there. And this is very counterintuitive because we tend to think that uh, the more somebody knows about my sin the less they're going to love me, the less they're going to like me, the less they're going to be connected with me. The, the more someone sees how selfish and prideful and how messed up and broken I am, the less connected they're going to be with me. And we tend to believe that if people really actually knew the real us, they would never love me. They'd never want to be my friend. They'd never want, want to be my spouse. They'd never want me to be their parent. They'd never want me to be their child. We tend to believe that it's safer to keep our sin, our faults, our failures, our falling short, the mess of our lives, our shortcomings, out of the sight of God and other people. We think that hiding our sin is the best way to be loved. Because if they really knew the real me, they would never love me. And the opposite is actually true. It's as long as sin is hidden, it can't be forgiven. As long as sin is hidden, it has power over you. As long as sin is hidden, you can't be loved for who you really are. As long as sin is hidden, you can't experience the cleansing power of Jesus. As long as sin is hidden, you're not telling the truth about yourself. You're hiding the real you, and you're pretending you're better than you are. I mean, let's just be honest. Living that way is exhausting. Oh my gosh, if they, if they found out about this, if they found out about that, oh, I, if they, I just did something wrong, but now I need to defend it and shift the blame somewhere else. It's just exhausting to live that way. 
And there are many ways in which we live in the dark by hiding sin. We might try to cover up our sin with our good deeds, hoping people will just see the good and they'll kind of ignore the bad. We show people the best part of ourselves instead of the worst parts of ourselves. I mean, think about social media. You're not posting about all your worst things. You're posting about all your best things. And it gets liked. That's what people like. People don't like it. You know, you know, I was really, you know, this is me being really messed up or something. We compare ourselves to others. You know, at least I'm not as bad as them. Or I'm better than them. Like, okay, I've done some bad stuff. I kind of messed up. But, you know, at least I'm not as bad as this person. Or we'll blame something or someone else for why we did what we did. We defend and justify our actions, trying to convince other people there was a good reason why I acted that way. There was a good reason why I yelled. There was a good reason why I was mean. There was a good reason why you know, I did that. We try to defend and justify. And in the Garden of Eden, as we saw in the beginning of this series, and Heather read for us Genesis 3, they were Adam and Eve were the first human beings, husband and wife, and they were naked and not ashamed, which is you know, a physical thing, but also like, we have nothing to hide here. We can be our true selves. We don't have to actually... You know, be something more. But after they sinned, they began walking in darkness. They're in the light. They began walking in darkness. They covered up. They hid from God and each other. And then they blamed someone else for what they had done. And every human being since that time, including each of us, has been doing the same thing. The human race started walking in the light with God. But we left him for the darkness. And now God's invitation is, come back into the light. Come back into the light. This is where you can be you can be loved. You can know who I really am. You can know who you really are. And I'll take care of all this stuff that you've done that you're trying to hide and deny you ever did. And disconnection began with lies about who God is, who we are, and the badness of sin. And so connection begins with walking in the truth about who God is, who we are, and the badness of sin. Disconnection began with walking in the darkness. Connection begins with walking in the light. And sin only is a barrier to connection with God and others if you hide it and deny it. If we refuse to let go of it, if we refuse to just admit that this is who we are, to let, you know, we need to let go of sin and stop hiding in order to leave the darkness. And we come into the light by, I'm not going to hide anymore. I'm not going to hold on to this sin. I don't want it in my life. And it's so relieving what John says. He's saying, I'm writing to you so you won't sin. That would be pretty, you know, a tough... Uh, thing to only hear that, like, okay, like, my way to relationship with God is I just have to not sin. But he says if anyone does sin, God is ready and waiting to forgive us. It's like this load off our back. It's like the worst thing we can do is keep trying not to sin and then pretend we didn't when we failed to do that. The best thing we can do is, like, I'm going to do my best to not sin. I'm going to trust in Jesus. I'm going to you know, ask for God's power. And when I do mess up, I'm just going to bring that to him right away and so I can just be cleansed of it. And so the one key practice for better connection with God and other people is this. It's honesty. I'm not saying that's the only practice, but it's a key practice. Honesty. And we practice honesty when we tell the truth about ourselves. How we've sinned, how we're struggling, how we've failed, how we're falling short, what we're feeling. And it's only telling the truth about ourselves that we can actually experience the truth about God. Because until we tell the truth about ourselves, the truth about God will remain outside of us. We might say, he's loving, he's forgiving, he's merciful, he's kind, he's good. But it's just going to be out here. If I hide my sin from him, we won't actually have a, a time when we get to experience what is his love for us no matter what is like. His unconditional love. Because we're saying, how I am right now, he can't love me. And so we're practicing conditional love with God. And all those things that are true from him will remain a concept and not a reality. It will not change us. 
So remember the quote from earlier. Genuine transformation requires vulnerability. It is not the fact of being loved unconditionally that is life-changing. It's the risky experience of allowing myself to be loved unconditionally. When we're honest with God and others, we're finally putting ourselves in a position to be loved by God, to be loved unconditionally. And this is where transformation happens. There's, I've been, there's several books I've read this year who, that they say make the same point. Love is the most powerful force in the universe. Not just like, ooh, you know, there's like love floating around, but to be loved by someone is the most powerful thing to create change in your life. And we, there's earlier messages why we, where we talked about why that actually is. And so when we put ourselves in a position to be loved unconditionally, that's where transformation happens. And so if you want to be a more loving person, a more joyful person, a more peaceful person, a more patient, a more kind, a more good, a more gentle, a more faithful, a more self-controlled person, then you need to allow God to love you. You need to put yourself in a position to allow God to be all those things towards you that you want to express yourself. And here's the pattern we see in all of Scripture. What God does to us, He wants to do through us. What God does to us, He wants to do through us. God loves us, then commands us to be loving. God gives us grace, then commands us to give grace. God shows us mercy, then commands us to be merciful. God blesses us, then commands us to bless others. What God does to us, he wants to do through us. And let's just look at one example. I'll just explain it. We won't have to turn there. But it's in John 13. Jesus has been with his disciples for three years ministering with them. And he says to them, The world will know you are my disciples by, some of you probably know the verse, but by what? How do we often live? Your exciting, inspiring worship services? The world will know you are my disciples by your knowledge of the Bible? The world will know you are my disciples by your stand against evil in the world? Your right doctrine and correct theology? Your ability to convince people that Jesus is real and he really died for their sins? No, he said the world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And so let's just step back and consider the situation in which he says this. This is said during the Passover meal with his disciples, which he's having on Thursday night before he's going to die the next day on Friday. This is within 24 hours of his death. Hours after saying this to them, he will be betrayed, he'll be arrested, he'll be beaten and mocked and put on trial, and then he'll be put on a cross to die. And he knows all this is going to happen. It's not a surprise to him. And it says this is actually why he does what he does. And he and his disciples, they're reclining around the dinner table, having um, the Passover meal together. And there's no one there to wash the dust off their feet. Now, you know if you wore sandals outside in like a dusty area like Israel is, and then they get all this dust and stuff caked onto them. You're sweating and get wet and there's just more stinky, you know, all that good stuff. And Jesus, there's nobody there to wash their feet, which is often what you do before dinner. You might have a servant there to wash your feet. Jesus looks around, there's no one here to wash your feet. And so he gets up, he gets a towel, he gets some water, and then he starts, you know, so the, the way they lay, it was kind of like they're laying down. They're almost like laying, reclining. That's what they did back in that day. So he's coming up to each of his disciples. They're reclining at the table, starts washing their feet. And they're kind of you know, laying down and looking back at him. And he begins washing their feet. He takes the role of the servant. When he gets to Peter, Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? You know, thinking, this is really a task below you. Like, this isn't something you should 
you shouldn't stoop this low. Jesus says, what I'm doing, what I'm doing to you, you don't understand now, but afterward, you will understand. And Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. I, can't, I just can't let you do this. I, this is just too much. You can't do this. And then Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And so Peter gets over himself very quickly. He says, Lord, not, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. He's like, okay, if, if I have to have you wash me in order to you know, be connected with you, to have a relationship with you, to um, be walking with you, then fine, wash everything you want to wash. And when Jesus finishes, he told his disciples, I knew a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Jesus said this during the last 24 hours of his earthly life, knowing full well he was going to the cross. And he gave them this command to love one another, just as I've loved you, right after he washes their feet, after loving them as a humble service, of stooping that low, of going that low, I'll do the dirtiest job for you. And really, in reality, that wasn't the dirtiest job he could do for them because just several hours later, he goes and dies on a Roman cross, naked, with his clothes off, pinned down on this thing, for all these people mocking him to see. This is what happens when people defy Rome. And people said, you know, he's dying as a rebel against Rome. But really, he was dying as a rebel against God. In our place, from all the ways we turn from God, all the ways we say no to God, Jesus was dying in our place. And this washing of his feet, just their feet, uh, this act of love as a humble servant, just pointed forward to the ultimate act of a humble servant, when he would die in our place. And Jesus gives this command to love one another after he has loved them, so that they would know this is the type of love he's talking about. This love that gets down and dirty and gets in the mess. No job is you know, below you. He's like, this is the kind of love I'm going to show you. And throughout the New Testament, the authors often say, you know, if you're reading your Bible, just look for this phrase. That, I mean, it doesn't happen like every page, but they say, Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. And ask yourself, and there's one really cool spot where the Apostle Paul is saying, Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. And ask yourself, are you able to say that in every morning? Jesus loved me and he gave himself for me. We don't have to question whether when we come into the light with our sin, what's God going to do? Because if we could deal with sin on our own, he wouldn't have sent Jesus to die for those sins in the first place. If we could be perfect on our own, that we, so when we come into the light, we're coming to the light with someone who's standing there with these scarred hands of, this is what I've already done with your sin. And so we're coming into the light to be embraced by that person, not someone who's going to say, when are you going to get this together? Gosh, you're such a screw-up. Could you ever just clean up your life? Why don't you clean yourself up? That's not the reality. He says, please come to me dirty. I'll wash you clean. Don't be afraid. That's what I'm here for. I've got the water. I've got the towel. I already died the death for you. Just come to the light. You don't have to clean yourself up. It's, just, it's so, so relieving, isn't it? So we try to live our whole lives trying to clean ourselves up, be good enough for God and other people. And in a way, Peter did not want to be in the light when Jesus came to wash his feet. When we come into the light, we bring all the dirty parts of ourselves to Jesus and we allow him to wash us. And Peter was saying, no, I can't, I can't show that you do that. And so often we do that too. I can't, this is too much for you to handle. This is too big for you. This is too much. But if we refuse to bring that into the light, we aren't connected with him. And perhaps you even say, you're not denying you're dirty. You're like, I am dirty. 
But this is too much for Jesus to take care of. But we need to come into the light and be willing to allow Jesus to kneel down at our feet. I mean, can you imagine this? This is Jesus, King of the universe, kneeling down at our feet, you know, metaphorically to wash us clean of our sin. And this brings us back to why we were created. You, you were made to be loved by God, to love God, and to love like God. And it happens in that order. First, you need to be loved by God. We love because he first loved us. And we're actually loved into loving. By being loved, we become loving people. And that's how, when we experience God's love, it leaves us changed. And the only way to experience God's love truly, not just as a concept or words on a page or you know, a doctrinal statement in the back for a songbook, is that we are honest with him. We come out of hiding, we bring it to him, and we receive his love and what he has done to make us clean. And let me say, being honest isn't just about telling someone all the worst things you've ever done in your life. All, although it could include that. You can, you can go that route if you want. But being honest means uh, you stop trying to convince people you have it all together. Being honest means you don't put on a performance for people or pretend that you're better than you are. Being honest means when you're in a fight with someone, you can admit that you've done wrong instead of defending yourself or justifying your actions or blaming. Well, you yelled at me first. Like, oh, you, you, know, you didn't pick up your toys. You know, instead of blaming, we just own it. And unless we tell the truth about ourselves, we aren't allowing God or others to love our true self. We're showing people a false self, the self we think that is more lovable than who we truly are. We have to take the risk of allowing others uh, to love us unconditionally, just as we are. And we too often try to walk in the light morally while denying all the times that we fail to walk morally. And that means we're still in the dark. We have to both walk in the light in how we live. We also have to walk in the light with telling the truth about how we've fallen short of that way we're trying to live. An author and pastor, Tim Keller, summarizes the gospel this way. He says, The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And growth in the Christian life comes as we increasingly become more aware of just how sinful we are, and at the same time, increasingly more aware of how far we fall short of God's glory, of His holy standards, of His righteousness. And as we see it, it's kind of like a you know, little triangle thing. It's like we're becoming more and more aware, and so this gap is getting bigger between my actions, what I'm actually like, and God's holiness and glory and righteousness. And the, we just keep seeing that, back, that, that gap get bigger and bigger. And what we see is that we deserve, we deserve the condemnation. We deserve the alienation. We deserve the, the separation. You know, the more aware we have our sin, the more where we fall short. That it's like we, I just, that's how far I should be separated from God. I should never be close with Him. It's because when we're aware of our sinfulness and how we fall short, we, it's not an end there. It's that then we are finally in a position to receive God's love for us. The more we see, I am just so not deserving a relationship with God the more we can say, thank you so much for your grace that you reached into my life, my dirty life, and cleaned me up, and you've loved me. Which God's love for his enemies is what transforms us into children instead of enemies. And there's two revealing moments to pay attention to in your life. When you sin, 
What do you think God is like? When you sin, what do you think God is like? When others sin, what are you like? When you sin, what do you think God is like? When others sin, what are you like? These two moments reveal to you what you really believe about God. We may be able to answer all the right questions if I gave you a little quiz on what's God like? I'm sure most of you could write down, oh, he's loving, he's patient, he's kind. You could write down these things that we've heard in church services or, you know, we all have kind of like, you know, if there is a God out there, you know, whatever he is, he must be loving. And so we all could probably write that down. But how we treat people when they're sinful and how we think God treats us when we are sinful reveals our true heart-level view of God. These are two key moments to receive God's love for us. And the one is when you sin, do you hide it? Do you cover it up? Do you justify and blame? Do you avoid and hide from God? And in that moment, you will dis- what you do tells you what you think about God. You can walk in the light instead of being in the dark and discover how deep and powerful his love is for you. So go to God. Tell him what you've done. Tell him, I know this is what I deserve for it, and I'm so thankful that you give me the opposite of what I deserve. Ask him to give you a deep sense of his love for you. That's why he gave you the Holy Spirit. And so in these moments we're being asked, do I really, am I really going to put the truth into practice of what the Bible tells me, what the gospel tells me, that God loves me, sent his son to die for me? Am I really going to believe that? Am I in alignment with that? And I'll just mention these two books. If you're looking, I, need some, I want something to read. I recommend these two books. So hopefully you can read the titles from there or you can come look at it. Or I recommend going through these two books as a really helpful way to, what is God really like toward me when I sin, when I suffer, when I struggle? And the second is when others sin and you're having a t- hard time loving them, what do you like? How does God, in, in those moments when it's like, I'm really frustrated, this person is really hard to love, and in that moment you're like, I'm supposed to be merciful, I'm supposed to be gracious, I'm supposed to be patient, I'm supposed to be gentle and kind, but I'm not feeling any of those things. And what you can do in that moment is say, how does God treat me when I do the exact same things they're doing? Whatever it is they're doing, you can think, oh, you know, I've been like that a lot of times in my life. And how does God treat me in that? And then we can say, God loves me, he forgives me, he's gentle with me and kind. And we can see, receive his love for us, and then we can give it on to them. And we've been talking about honesty as a key practice. And you might have thought, you know, if I said, you know, what is kind of like the one key practice to improve your relationship with God and with others, you might have thought, well, repentance. Because we've got to repent, right? We do wrong things, and we've got to repent. That's how we get a relationship with God. We turn away from sin, and we turn to God. And that repentance is important, but if we're not honest about our sin, we'll never repent. If we don't think we're sinful, or that what we're doing is bad, or that we want to try to keep hiding it, we'll never say, I want to turn from all this stuff, and I want to turn to God to receive the forgiveness and the grace and the love that he has for me. And if we're not turning from those things, we're going to be looking at other sources of being right with God. I'm going to just try to be better. Or I'm just going to hide this, hope he doesn't see it. Or, I'm going to, you know, it's, it's other people's fault. We're going to look for other sources of being right with God. And finally we say, I'm turning from the sin. I'm turning from these other sources of being right with God. I'm just coming to receive what he has to give me. And forgiveness is Jesus getting down as a servant to wash us clean of the filth of our sin. I want to just close with one image. Um, it's actually from this Surrender to Love book. And he kind of 
uh, I mean, surrender is in our mission statement, right? Surrendering all of life to Jesus, inviting others to do the same. And he uses this image uh, for surrender of talking about people trying to learn to like float. I don't. I think they're like in the sea or a lake or something. And if you think about, I don't know how you how we swim. Maybe you doggy paddle, or maybe you look, you know, a little more professional and do do that route. But mm-hmm. you know, if you're trying to stay afloat, uh, being straight up and down, you've got to be moving the whole time. It takes work the whole time. You have to keep doing it. Um, but what's actually true is what he talks about is that you can float in the water by doing nothing. But what it requires, it requires this moment where I'm going to stop kicking, and I'm going to get in the right position, and I'm just going to let the water hold me. Or if you're holding on the side of the boat, you're like, I don't think it can hold me. You know, what are we holding on to? What are we trying to do on our own effort? And he talks about when we finally surrender to love, it's finally saying, I don't have to kick to stay afloat with God. I don't have to kick to stay afloat with other people. I don't, this isn't about my effort. This isn't about me keeping this thing going. It's finally saying, oh, I can just float and relax and rest. doesn't mean we don't do things then after that, but it's this, what does it look like to actually trust? You know, you've probably seen a trust fall before, but it's like in order to experience somebody being reliable, you have to actually fall backwards and let them catch you. And so when we finally start doing that, we start experiencing the freedom we long for. I just want to be free from having to try so hard, from having to always kind of put my best game on and freedom gives us love, joy, and peace. Think about it. If you're like really striving in a relationship or really striving with God or being like, I need to really earn his love, you're not going to feel loved. You're not going to have joy. You're not going to have peace. You're going to love. You're going to have fear. You're not going to have, in place of all that, you're going to have fear. You're going to have anxiety. You're like, Am I ever doing enough? Are the things I did even good enough for him? You're just going to have this, oh, I just don't know. It's like this anxiety. But when we finally... I'm just going to rest in the love he says he has for me, then we finally can have joy, love, and peace. Let's pray that God would give that to us. God, you love us more than we could imagine, and we can experience that love and really feel it when we turn from our sin and other ways of trying to impress you or be right with you. So God, would you help us do that before you and with other people? Son's name we pray. Amen.